0: Well, good morning, everybody, and let me just add a word of welcome to all of you. We're so glad that you're here with us this morning as we take a look at another one of these parables of Jesus. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I've been just fascinated and, uh, and really been enjoying studying these parables together during Lent this year. And uh, we're going to take a look at a new parable this morning, this parable of the rich man and Lazarus. But I'm, I'm going to Uh, approach it just a little bit differently with you this morning. Instead of kind of working our way through the story, um, I want to take a look at three characters in this story. Two actually in the parable and one outside the parable. So I want to look at those three characters with you. And then there's a theological concept in this parable that... uh, honestly is a real stumbling block for a lot of people. So I'm going to use the rest of the message to look at that theological concept that can be a stumbling block for people. So, so okay, three characters, stumbling block, done with the sermon, okay? That's the plan, all right? Uh, but first, let's, uh, let's bow our heads and let's pray together. Lord, I pray that the words I'm about to speak and the thoughts that we think is together, we meditate on your word for us, on your will for our lives on what this parable has to say for us. Lord, I pray that that would all be truly acceptable in your sight, O God, who's indeed our rock and our redeemer, our source of identity and purpose and hope and peace and joy in our lives. Amen. So, we're going to start with three characters, and the first character I want to look at with you is this character of the rich man. Now, uh, we're we're told a few details about him that I want to make sure that you don't miss. Uh, First of all, we're told that there were daily two things that he did. First of all, he was clothed in purple and fine linen, and literally, the tense of the verb tells us here, he clothed himself in purple and fine linen every day. So kind of like Steve Jobs, you know, same jeans and, uh, and black turtleneck every day. For him, it was purple clothing. Now why? Why did he do that? Well, purple clothing in Jesus' day was incredibly expensive. It was the most expensive color of cloth, and in fact, only the richest of the rich could afford it. And, and, and so basically what this guy is saying by wearing purple every day is he wants everybody to know how rich he really is. Now, I don't know about you, I, I, I have some friends that are fairly wealthy, and, and most of those friends that I have that are wealthy, you wouldn't know it if you just took a look at them. They, they dress the same as everybody else, they drive the same kind of car, they, they live in the same kind of house, um, and, and so even though they have a lot of money, you wouldn't know it by just hanging around with them. But there's a couple people I know who are fairly wealthy, and they want to make sure you know it right? And, and again, it's the way they dress, it's the car that they drive, the house that they live in, you know, the jewelry they wear. Just every day, it's kind of there in your face, a reminder, I got a lot of money. Well, that's this guy, okay? This guy is kind of flaunting his wealth every day. And the other thing that notices it says is he, he, he didn't only dress as a rich guy every day. It says every day he ate these incredible meals. Now this tells us something else about him because remember Jesus is telling this parable to a bunch of observant Jews and he was an observant Jew himself and so the characters in the parable are assumed to be observant Jews which means the rich guy should have been honoring the Sabbath. In other words, one day a week, he should have eaten a very simple meal that had been prepared the day before so that he didn't have to do any work and the people in his household didn't have to do any work. And in fact, observing the Sabbath was like one of the most important ways that you lived out your faith as a Jew. That's still, by the way, uh, the same when you go to Israel today. They're very uh, serious about the Sabbath. And, and so the fact that this guy is ignoring the Sabbath means not only does he want to make sure everybody around him knows he's rich, he also really doesn't care what God thinks. He, he, he might believe in God, he might even say he loves God, but, but his actions say something very different. Now, there's something else that we're told about the rich guy in the parable, right? That there's this guy named Lazarus, this beggar that's outside his door every day, and the guy never helps him. He never gives him anything. And so we might say, well, you know, maybe he didn't know it. Maybe he didn't know the guy was out there. I mean, after all, maybe he didn't walk in and out of his own gate. Maybe he had a side entrance he went in. Or maybe nobody ever told him that Lazarus was out there. Or or maybe there were so many people to help, he couldn't help them all. But, but there's an interesting detail in this story, as you get a little further into it, that the rich man is in hell, Lazarus is in heaven, and the rich man looks up to heaven and look at what he says. He says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. In other words, not only does he recognize Lazarus in heaven, he knows his name, So we can't cut this guy any slack. We can't say, oh, maybe he didn't know, maybe he never met the guy. Uh, the, The fact is, he knew Lazarus, he knew who he was, he knew he was out there every day, and he never helped him. Tells us a lot about him, doesn't it? On the other hand, let's take a look at the character of Lazarus. Here's an interesting fact for you. Do you know that in all of Jesus' parables, all the different stories he told that he never gives any one of the characters a name except for once, this guy. It's the only guy that has a name in any of Jesus' parables. Now, uh, I believe there's two reasons for that. I'm gonna tell you one of those reasons now, and I'm gonna save the other reason for the end of the sermon, okay? So, so, so the first reason that, that, that I believe Jesus gives this guy, Lazarus, a name is because the name Lazarus means the one whom God helps. Now, it, it's kind of ironic at the beginning of the parable, isn't it? Because it doesn't seem like God is helping him very much at all. He's, he's a poor beggar. He has sores all over. It, it doesn't seem like he's getting any kind of help. And, and by the way, in Jesus' day, they taught and believed that if you were a poor beggar who was sick like this, it was because God was judging you. Do you remember there was that story where Jesus and his disciples are walking along the road and there's a man who's born blind and the disciples are a little confused and they say, hey, Jesus, whose sin made this guy blind? Is he blind because of his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus just shakes his head and goes, you guys are dorks, you don't get it, right? But, uh, well, maybe he didn't use that exact word. But, uh, but, um, but, but Jesus says, no, that's not how it works. But, but so in this parable, you know, y- you would have originally thought, well, th- this guy must have done something wrong that, that he's a beggar, he, he must be a real bad sinner that God isn't helping him, and yet his name is the one whom God helps. And then, of course, as the story goes on, God does help him, right? He, he dies, and it says the angels come and, and usher him into heaven where he is comforted and ministered to and taken care of. He indeed becomes the one that God helps, and by the way, God isn't the only one helping him in this story. Did you notice that it says that every day he was laid? There was laid a poor man named Lazarus. So in other words, there are townspeople that are bringing him and putting him at the gate of the rich man. They know they can't really help him, but they know the rich man can, and they're hoping one day he will. And notice also that not only are the townspeople helping him, but, but, but even the dogs are helping him. Now, dogs weren't pets in Jesus' day. They were guard dogs. They were, they were useful tools in your home. And, and so the rich man evidently had some guard dogs, and instead of attacking Lazarus or uh, trying to run him off, they lick his wounds, which is how a dog tries to help a wound heal. The, the dogs are even showing him more care and concern than the, their master is. Lots of people are helping Lazarus. And, and, and it seems like he's kind of a good guy, I, I, I love later in the story when the rich man looks up to heaven and says, hey, send Lazarus to help me. Now, if I were Lazarus and I was up in heaven now and I'm watching this conversation take place and uh, I've spent my whole life outside this guy's gate and he never once helped me and now he needs my help and he wants my help, I'd be like going, seriously? You didn't do anything for me now? You want my help? But he doesn't say that, does he? He's just silent. silent. And in fact, later in the parable, when Abraham says, hey, even if somebody wanted to come down there and help you, they couldn't, uh, there, are, there are a lot of uh, old uh, theologians that study this parable that believe that, that what that means is literally Lazarus wanted to go help. And Abraham's saying, no, even if somebody wanted to, he can't. You know, the image there is almost of Lazarus kind of whispering to Abraham, it's okay, I'll go help, I'll go help. And he's like, no, even if you want to, you can't. Wow. So, so now at this point in the parable, if we just stopped here, honestly, for those of us that have been Christians for a while, those of us that understand God's love and God's grace, um, those of us that understand that it's not what we do that earns us heaven, uh, there's a little problem because right now it looks like the parable is saying bad people go to hell, good people go to heaven. That can't be it. There's got to be something more going on here. And that's why I want to look at the third character with you. It's not a character in the parable. It's actually the people to whom the parable was being told, and that's a group of Pharisees. You see, let me set the context for you a little bit here. Jesus has been teaching about money, actually. He's been been saying things like, you can't serve God and serve your money. You can't serve two masters. You can't love God and love money. He says, you, you can't do both. You've got to choose one or the other. And, and when Jesus was teaching this, look at what it says. It says, the Pharisees, who, by the way, it says, were lovers of money, heard these things and they're making fun of Jesus. So think about that. These were the Pharisees. These were the religious leaders of the day. These were the, like the pastors, uh, the, the, the theologians of the day. And, uh, and we're told that when Jesus said you can't love God and money, they were like, well, that's stupid. That's ridiculous. We love both. And Jesus is saying, no, you don't. And so Jesus tells this story to try to help the Pharisees understand how dangerous the condition of their heart was. We say that one more time. Jesus tells this parable because he wants the Pharisees to understand that their hearts were on a dangerous path. Okay, so I said three characters and a theological concept that's a stumbling block for people. Well, that's hell. This story's all about hell. And, uh, and, And I don't know about you, but when I talk to people who are not believers, who don't believe in God, who don't believe in the Bible, hell is one of the main reasons they give me why they don't. They say things like this, how could God be loving and create a place of eternal torment and torture and send people there? Or, or, they, or, or, or they'll say things like, I could never believe in a God that would send someone to hell. And, and by the way, it's not just non-Christians that have trouble with this. My guess is there are a bunch of you in the room going, yeah, how could God be loving and create this place of torment and torture. How could a loving God send someone to hell? I don't know that I want to believe in a God that sends people to hell. In fact, 67% of Christians say they're not sure about the whole idea of hell. They all believe in heaven, not so sure about hell. Well, in this story, Jesus teaches that there is a place named hell. And let me tell you this, if you don't understand what the Bible teaches about hell, you cannot understand the condition of your heart. And I know that sounds counterintuitive, but let me just say that again. If you don't understand the biblical teaching of hell, you will never be able to understand and diagnose the condition of your heart. So, so let's talk about that a little bit more. Let's go back to this rich man in the story. Now, I, I said he didn't have a name, but he kind of does have a name. His name is Rich Man right? And, uh, and, and what that really shows us is, and, and the details we learned about him show us that his identity was wrapped up in this idea that he was rich. That, that, was, that was his identity. That was, that was how he saw himself. That was the most important thing in his life. There's a philosopher named uh, Soren Kierkegaard, and uh, in talking about sin, Kierkegaard said, sin isn't about breaking rules, Sin is about making anything other than God the source of identity in our lives. Here's, an, here's another way to think of this. Think, think about this. Is there something in your life that if you have that thing, if that's going well, if that's right in your life, the rest of the stuff in your life can be falling apart as long as that's right? Or or conversely, is there something in your life that even though all kinds of great things can be going on in your life, if that's broken or if you lose that, then your whole life falls apart? And if either of those things are true or both of those things are true for you, what it means is you have something that you are making your source of identity more than God. Because you see, Jesus is supposed to be that thing, right? Right? It's supposed to be that if I have Jesus, if my relationship with Jesus is there, then everything else can fall apart in my life and it doesn't matter because I got Jesus. Uh, but conversely, if I don't have Jesus, I can have everything else in the world, but it all means nothing. Nothing. Martin Luther put it this way in the explanation to the first commandment. He said, um, he said having another God means that, that he said we should fear, love, and trust in God above everything else. So in other words, having another God is that when, when we fear or love or trust in something more than God, that's having another God. That's kind of the root of sin in our lives. So for the rich guy, his money was that thing. It was the thing that, that he put his source of hope and identity in. Instead of God. And that was a problem. Now, another a Christian psychologist kind of described sin almost as like an addiction in our lives. There are three components to addiction, by the way. One of them is what they call disintegration. And what that means is if you're addicted to something, as time goes on, you need more and more of it to be okay. So, like if you're an alcoholic, you know, it, it, as time goes on, you need to drink more and more and more every day just to get to that same level of, okay, I'm okay now, right? Uh, there's, there's another area of, of addiction, and, and that is that area of isolation. The, the more you are addicted to something, the less you care about anything else in your life, which means you isolate yourself from relationships, you isolate yourself from other things. It becomes all about that, and finally, the last aspect of it is denial. You just refuse to believe that it's got that kind of control over you. I mean, how many times have you, you talked to somebody who you knew was addicted to something and they say, oh, I can stop anytime I wanted? It. It's not a problem, right? There's this idea of denial. Well, this psychologist says we're all addicted to something. That's what sin is in our lives. We all have that thing in our lives that, that we just need more and more and more and more of all the time and we're never gonna be happy. Or, or the, the more we pay attention to that, the more isolated we become to others, the more we start to deny the power of that thing in our lives. That's what sin is. So what's that thing for you? Because we've all got it. We've all got something that we fear, love, or trust in more than God. We've all got something that we're addicted to, that we want more of. And, and by the way, in our society, um, you know, some things just are easier to be addicted to than others. If you're addicted to drugs, you're an addict. If you're addicted to your career, you're successful or ambitious, right? So what's that thing for you? What's that thing that for you, if left unchecked, would eventually tear you away from God, tear you away from people, and you don't even want to think about it or know about it because that denial's starting to kick in? Now, you're you're saying, well, wait a minute, what does that have to do with hell, Mark? I thought we were talking about hell, not sin. Well, C.S. Lewis, uh, this great Christian theologian, wrote this amazing book called The Great Divorce. And and I, I can honestly tell you, I don't think I understood the biblical teaching about hell until I read this book. And, uh, and I want to read you one little quote from this book because it really just kind of nails it for me. It really makes it clear, this whole idea about sin and hell and how we can have a loving God that, that, that would send people to hell. You see, because C.S. Lewis says, remember that we as Christians believe that we're going to live forever. And, and not just Christians, everybody lives forever. Human beings are eternal so listen to what he says. Let me read this to you. He says, Christianity asserts that we are going to go on forever. And that must be either true or false. Now there are a good many things that wouldn't be bothering that I wouldn't be bothering about if I was going to live eighty years or so. But I had better bother about them if I'm going to go on living forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are getting worse so gradually that the increase in my lifetime will not be very noticeable, but it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is precisely the correct technical term for it. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer do so. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even enjoy the mood, but just the grumble itself going on and on forever like a machine. Now listen to this last part, because again, I think he just nails what the Bible teaches about hell. He says, it's not a question of God sending us to hell. In every one of us, there is something growing, which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. In other words, what what C.S. Lewis is saying here is that God does not send people to hell. We create hell for ourselves, and we send ourselves there. In another part of the book, he says this. He says, the gates of hell are locked, but they're locked from the inside, not the outside. In other words, God doesn't throw people into hell and lock them there. They put themselves in hell, and they lock themselves in there. I mean, think about it. In our story, in the parable, does the rich man ask to get let out of hell? No. It's like he's perfectly content to be in hell as long as Lazarus will come be there with him and take care of him. We don't get sent to hell by a God who's angry because we broke the rules. We create hell for ourselves by our sinful behavior that just gets bigger and bigger and goes on forever and ever in our lives. Uh, Another uh, Christian pastor, a guy named Tim Keller, put it this way. I wrote it down here so I could remember it. Hell is just your freely chosen identity based on something other than God that goes on Forever. Folks, you see, there are two kinds of people in the world. There's, there's the kind of people that look at God and say, God, thy will be done. And there's the kind of people that God looks at and says, thy will be done. Hell isn't a place that God created so he could send us to punish us for being bad. Hell is a a place we create when we, when we put our identity in something other than him and over time, it just gets worse and worse and worse, and we don't even know it to realize it. So back to the Pharisees. Why did Jesus tell them this story? Because he wanted them to understand that the condition of their heart was sending them down the path to hell. He wanted them to understand that, that by loving money, by finding their source of identity in money, just like the rich man in this parable, they were dooming themselves to be eternally separated from the God they claimed to love and worship. He was trying to help the Pharisees see what was broken in their lives. And so here's my question for you. What's the condition of your heart like right now? Have you let something Take center stage in your life. A a fear or something you love or or, or something that you're you're trying to gain more of in your life. Have you let something become more important to you than your relationship with God? Because that's the danger. Now, there is some good news in this parable though. And near the end of the parable, remember, the rich man says, hey, Abraham, uh, send Lazarus back from the dead. If he can't come here and serve me, send him back from the dead so at least he can warn my five brothers. And and Abraham says, it's not going to work. Abraham basically says, they already have what they need to break that cycle of addiction to sin in their lives. And what's that thing? He says, Moses and the prophets, basically, The Bible. That was their Bible in that day. They had Moses and the prophets. He said, they've got the word of God. And and it's the word of God that's the only thing that will break through that cycle of sin and addiction in our lives. It's the only thing that can get the condition of our heart right with God. It's God's word. Passages like this one. This is a passage that the rich man and his brothers had. from Isaiah chapter 53. Let me read it for you. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who's that talking about? Jesus. Even though it was written hundreds of years before he came under this earth, It was a prophecy pointing to that son of God that would come and and he would take our place in hell so that we could be set free. Folks, the only thing, the only answer to the sin in our lives that will eventually ruin us is Jesus. We have that gift. Let me ask you a question. How much does God love you? Now think about that for a minute. Now now first of all, let's pretend that people are right that don't believe in hell, that there is no hell, right? If there's no hell, what does it cost God to love you? Nothing. He just loves you. But if there is hell, if it's real and it's something we've created for ourselves that we doom ourselves to and the only way to solve it is for him to go there in our place, then what does it cost God to love you? everything so the doctrine of hell not only helps us understand the condition of our own heart it helps us understand God's heart God's heart for you and for me because we have a God that that loves us so much he would go anywhere and do anything for us even take hell for us isn't that amazing that's how much he loves us Now, I I told you that at the end of the message today, I tell you the other reason why I think Jesus gave this guy the name Lazarus. Okay, so, so this, this story that we're reading, this parable, is told to us in the Gospel of Luke. And, and, and if we take the Gospel of John and we look at it, it's the stories that were told there, and we try to fit the chronology together, uh, the, about the best we can figure out is it was somewhere right around almost the same day, maybe a couple days either way, that, that Jesus told this parable to the Pharisees, and he raised this real guy named Lazarus from the dead, Jesus is trying to connect the dots for them. Remember in the parable, the rich man says, Well, send Lazarus back from the dead to warn me. And he's like, That won't help. They've got Moses and the prophets. It's as if Jesus is telling the Pharisees Look, the condition of your heart is so messed up, but you've got the answer. It's my word and if he was hoping that, that 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 real miracle he would do would actually shake them up enough that they would realize that they had to turn to God's word and that was the solution for what was broken in their lives but look what they did when they heard about Lazarus being raised from the dead they said that's it we got to kill Jesus it's so sad so let me ask you one more time what about you What about the condition of your heart this morning? Folks, we all have those things that that we seek to put in the center of our heart. We all have those things that we make the source of our identity and our hope and our joy and our peace other than God. We all have those things. We're all sinners. But we've got the answer, and the answer to that is Jesus. And his word, the, the powerful word that said to Lazarus, Lazarus, come out of that tomb, and it raised him from the dead. That same word says to you and me, You are loved. You are my child. You can find your identity in me. I pray that you would let God's word transform your heart, that that you would let Jesus be the source of hope and peace and joy and well-being, that he would be your identity, that he would be your Savior. Let's bow our heads and let's pray together. Lord, uh, this morning we come before you and we freely admit that all too often uh, we find our peace, we find our hope, we find our identity in stuff other than you. We cling to the fact that we are pastor or doctor or lawyer or, or whatever that is in our life by which people know us. We, we, we cling to the fact that we are father, mother, or, or son, or daughter. We, we cling to the fact that we have cool stuff, and, and through it all, we forget that none of it is worth anything if we don't have you. So, Lord, let your word break into that addiction in our lives and, and, uh, and, and take away our denial and our isolation. Let us find all we need every day in you. And, Lord, I pray that you hear us also as together we pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name.